This is one of those interesting films to talk about because this was a film that is actually out of place twice. First, it was supposed to come out much earlier in the MCU. Captain Marvel was supposed to be part of the lineup of the Avengers like forever and was supposed to have like little side occurrences in Guardians of the Galaxy or background references. And technically, she should have this whole time. The fact that this is the first time we've ever seen her, despite her interacting with several major things, is, well, it's a retcon, right? Some things can make a little bit more sense in the advantage of hindsight, but other things are just like, well, why didn't we ever... I mean, you'd think this would be big news, right? <laughs> but no. Of course, that's all pretty much universally because of Perlmutter. Yeah, see, this was actually supposed to be a Phase 2 film. In fact, they started pre-production work on this and script work on this right around when Avengers was coming out, when they were, when they were finishing the post-production work on Avengers. The first one. <laughs> that one. All the way back in Phase 1. <laughs> but Perlmutter said, no, no, I'm a moron, and therefore I think you shouldn't do that. And so... You know, phase two happened. And then, you know, Perlmutter was removed from creative control. The Marvel Creative Committee was removed from control. And Kevin Feige was allowed to finally make several films. By the way, this is also what happened to Black Panther. So... Anyways, I point that up because it, hel it helps to explain part of why this film doesn't really fit in the, the overall continuity as well as it should. Because it feels like it should slide in be... Aha! But it doesn't because it was because of the issues with when it's supposed to happen. And it also helps to explain why they go back into the 90s to explain this and why they're doing an origin story film this late in the MCU's franchise, which, I mean, if you're paying attention, this is they, they shouldn't really be doing origin stories this late. <laughs> Anyways. I do have to say something real quick about the film proper once we get there. They, the intro is replaced, even on the copy I watched, which was a, obviously an Amazon-rented copy, which is how I watch most of these, because the Infinity Saga box set hasn't come out yet, or even been confirmed to exist. Anyways, I'm going to buy it if it does. <laughs> but no. The point is uh, the Stanley intro. I just want to share really quick. Obviously, it's still kind of heartwarming, you know. But when the intro started playing, we were in we were in the theaters, you know, me and my usual crew, my sister, her husband, my friend, third. And we're sitting there, and it starts up, and we start to realize what we're looking at. And the audience just exploded into applause. Just, yeah, yeah, goes out. And then it ended with, thank you, Stan. And like half the audience said out loud, thank you, Stan. It was just really heartwarming and awesome. Um, the man certainly did some questionable things early on in his career, but... In my opinion, there's no doubt that he was an awesome guy for a lot of the for a lot of that for a lot of this, and uh, yeah, I just thought it was really really cool that they did that. Anyways, <clears throat> for those of you not aware, historically speaking, and wondering what the hell I'm talking about, uh, Captain America came out after Stanley passed away. It was the first big one to come out after Stanley passed. So, Whew. so <clears throat> Kree Empire. Okay, cool, cool. It's been 120 days since the last scroll attack. All right, all right. So we can already see they've got a little bit of the dystopian thing going on. Also, anybody paying any kind of attention knows that the Kree aren't exactly good guys because, you know, we watched Guardians of the Galaxy. In addition to that, there's obviously the comic stuff, but I'll cover that in just a moment. There is, however, a fairly large amount of 
frankly awkward exposition towards the beginning of the film where they just it, it, it's it's as you know they don't literally say as you know but it's a lot of hey did you know this thing that you already know so the audience can be aware of it and it's like yeah okay come on we do find out about the supreme intelligence we find out about the scroll expansion actually really quick aside for those of you not aware the supreme intelligence is a thing in the comics it takes the form of this big green head right that's its true form or whatever. And it's formed from the consciousness of all of, like, the best of Cree society. Um, they were actually going to show that in the film, right at the end, right, at, right as she has her big confrontation with it. But they were like, nah, it's going to interrupt the pace and flow. They're just going to see this big green head in the background. They're like, what the hell is that? So they decided to nix that. Shrug. So th there's this large push, you should ignore your emotions. Stop being so emotional. Now... A lot of people have made fun of this because of how stoic um, Brie Larson tends to play the character, at least for the first half of the film. But actually, I, I hate to say this, it actually makes perfect sense. I mean, jokes aside, the fact is they are trying to prevent her from recovering her memories and going against them. Remember, they're trying to control her, to use her as a weapon of their expansion and their conquest. So it actually makes perfect sense that they're constantly telling her this because what they're doing is they're telling her a rhetoric. Or, no, that's the wrong word. Um... A dogma, basically. A doctrine. No, don't allow your emotions to get into the check. Your past doesn't matter. Yourself doesn't matter. You exist to serve for the good of all Cree. You know, that whole thing. And we kind of see the level of propaganda that they push pretty early on. Now, then we get to the scene. And I remember watching this and being like, okay. Then we get to the part where they go to this infiltration mission, and the first thing we see is that Ronan the Accuser is there, as part of the Accusers, and they show up and just start carpet-bombing the planet. Now, I talked about this during the stream. That was the first moment where I was like, wait, that's... what? <laughs> what? In hindsight, it is actually pretty obvious. They do a lot to foreshadow the eventual twist. But that one just made me go, huh? But I will admit the twist still caught me, and I want to talk about why when we get there. Moving on. So, uh, speaking of the twist, though, Yonrog helps with the whole deception thing. Why? It's pretty clear he's one of the better Kree. You know, someone who is less horrifying. Like, imagine for a moment if, you know, Vers, Veers, whatever they call her, Carol, Danvers, uh, imagine for a moment if she was actually under the purview and, uh, and organization of Ronan the Accuser. It would become very obvious immediately that she's working for the bad guys, right? But no, instead, she works for Yonrog, who's actually not that horrible of a person. I know that's damning with faint praise, but when you consider a lot of what we know about the Kree, he is probably one of their better figures. If I could use a parallel, it's like in Mass Effect 2, where the people we work with with regards to the Cerberus organization are some of the better people in the organization, so we see a lighter side of the group and therefore are inclined to believe them. That's, that actually works in character and out in both cases. They're trying to deceive Shepard just like they're trying to deceive Danvers, right? So... <clears throat> So they carpet bomb for an infiltration mission. <sighs> Whatever. Um, I'm just going to fast forward through a bit of the mission here because, you know, some random stuff happens, yada, yada, yada. Uh, ben Mendelsohn. So he plays Talos. He also plays Keller. He's actually, this is going to sound funny, but he's another aspect of how this twist works. I just want to give him special praise, though, because he's, he's good. 
Like, he's really good. He's a, he's a great actor, and I like him in a lot of the stuff he's been in lately. Uh, I'll kind of cover that more in a minute because it's more relevant in a minute. But right now, <clears throat> we see that the scroll are not villainous-sounding. Now, to explain what I mean by that, I've talked about this before. When writing dialogue, there's certain patterns and, and word choices and structures to the sentences that you write, and you write differently when you're writing someone who's a good guy versus someone who's a bad guy, right? I mean, if, if, if on some level or another, you've probably noticed this, especially in movies, which uses this extensively. It's, it's supposed to be a quick shorthand for, oh, that's a villain, right? And I point this out because the way they talk is not bad guy talk. In fact, they kind of sound like the good guy, like the quirky team who's working with the good guys, which, I mean, right? <clears throat> they also go through the whole memory sequence, which, can I just say, they do a really good job with the memory sequence, ignoring the fact that there's a lot of obvious foreshadowing. We even see Goose there, consequently. Uh, there's, I love the bit where they just kind of blur it between events, because that's how memories work, but also because there's this really great bit where she's at the field, and she talks to... Marvell, I can't remember her code, her, her other name, her code name. And then she's like, huh, and then she turns, and the camera follows her in one shot, and she talks to her, and then the camera goes back to her, and she talks to her again, and it's just like, what in the world? It's really well done. It, it helps to emphasize the nature of how they're kind of messing with her memories and her mind at the time. You'll also notice Talos... Once he, once she goes after him, he doesn't try to force her or attack her. He just talks with her. Listen, <laughs> just just little tidbits, and I point all this out because they do most of their foreshadowing for the twist up until this point, until she escapes and gets to Earth. The moment she gets down to Earth, they actually flip this completely. This is one of the ways which the narrative kind of fails, if I could be so bold, because all of the in, all of the interactions of the scroll down on the Earth are going to be, we're the bad guys again. Like, what's one of the first things they do when they find her at, uh, near the radio shack? They try to shoot her. And then they try, you know, he tries to kill Fury, and then the other one tries to escape onto the train, and blah, blah, blah. And just, most of what they do is more of the villainous style of pre presentation rather than the good. We can't excuse it. We can explain it away. But the presentation style is trying to trick you. That's the whole point I'm trying to make here. So... We can now see why Blockbuster failed. It's because she went... Why did they call S.H.I.E.L.D. on this, by the way? Like, the cop dude calls it in, right? And the local police... So, excuse me, excuse me. The security guard calls it in. The local police show up. It takes them absolutely forever to get there, by the way. So, that's realistic, at least. But S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up, too. Why? I've tried to wrap my mind around that. The best I've got is someone noticed the fact that it, you know, say she came in through the ceiling. And they were like, okay, we'll call in S.H.I.E.L.D., even though at this point, S.H.I.E.L.D. is barely even aware of, like, the meta metamorphic, metaphysical super aspect of the world. So I'm not even sure why they... Why did they call S.H.I.E.L.D. here? Especially Fury himself, who, remember, at this point is just cap captaining a desk because he has no idea where he's going with his career. As he himself puts it, you know, I'm trying to figure out where our next enemies are coming from. Well, let me go ahead and give you a pro tip from inside. Anyways, <clears throat> sorry, spoilers. So she is super casual about all this, which makes sense, because to her this is just a Tuesday. And then he, well, he's of course super skeptical, but he also adapts instantly, which makes sense, even though he's a you know, you know, younger 
more casual, more, you know, later on he's got that thing that I'm fury, and I'm going to be serious about everything, even when I'm being kind of humorous. But here he's just kind of like, hey, whatever, you know. Even though he is that person, he is still the same person, by which I mean he is still Nick frickin' Fury. Now, I also point this out because uh, this is probably one of the reasons this movie succeeds so well, in my opinion. This is probably going to sound weird, but the chemistry between Brie Larson and uh, Samuel L. Jackson is really, really good. The two act off of each other wonderfully. And this enters the buddy cop section of the film, which, unfortunately, I don't have much to say about specifically because it's mostly just the two actors acting off of each other. But as fiction has shown many, many times, when you get two actors that just have wonderful chemistry like this and have them act off of each other, you tend to get good stuff. Uh, see Babylon 5 for an excellent example of that. With, uh... Oh, God, I can't think of the names all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, with Jakar and Londo. You know, you just you put them in a room and you just start the camera and it's just gold. Anyways, <clears throat> so uh, she's like, okay, going to go ahead and figure out what we're doing. Um, goes to Alta Vista, of course. Actually, funnily enough, Alta Vista was the search engine I used back in the day. I know a lot of people used Ask Jeeves. What did you use? Just to Or did you use AOL because you had no choice? <laughs> or were you one of those people who used AOL and then immediately stopped using AOL's service? Like you were still use AOL to connect and then you just open up. You know, something else entirely to just bypass, because I did that too. Anyways, <clears throat> there's a lot of, hey, it's the 90s references, so I'm going to kind of skip over most of those too. What I'm going to skip to is uh, Fur we get to Fury in the, in the bar, and we get a little bit of Fury's backstory, which is nice. But again, that's relevant because this is when we find out that his career has basically stalled. Went straight into the military excelled exceptionally in the military, went straight into espionage, probably got picked, handpicked for S.H.I.E.L.D. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Hydra guy, whose name I can't think of, the guy from Winter Soldier, sought out Fury, even though he wasn't Hydra material, just because he was that high quality. Pulled him into them, Cold War kind of started petering out, and now it's like, well, okay, now what? <laughs> You know, winds of change, golden era, TNG, right? So it's like, okay, now what? And you could just kind of feel for the guy. This occurs in 95. So, yeah, he's just been kind of stalling since the late 80s. And then this happens. And I know this sounds strange, but it all, all of a sudden it puts a lot of Nick Fury into focus when you look at it from this angle. You'll notice at the very end of the film, when he's talking to Coulson, he's adopted his more serious, I can't confirm or deny what happened there, I cannot explain to you the fact that this this was a freaking cat that did this to me. God, the freaking cat. And I point that out because he has this sort of natural joke, jocular, when he starts singing, for God's sakes. You know, he's like, ah, oh, do, 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 to her. That was towards the end of the film, too. He isn't like that with anyone else. Just interesting to think about. So... This then leads to a really great bit where he's like, you know, war is a universal language. I recognize a rogue cop has got a personal stake when I see one. There's something messed up about that, but I agree with him. War is basically a universal language, isn't it? If we ever re actually meet aliens, that's probably how we're going to be able to understand each other. So, what have you gone through? Well, anyways... <clears throat> I do actually wonder how much of this was being pushed by Hydra at the time. Unfortunately, obviously, they don't know, and they can't show it, because then Fury would have known way in advance. But it's interesting to think about. Goose shows up. Goose is awesome. There's a bit where he 
you know, gets this fingerprint and puts it on the tape and puts it on the thing. And I point that out because that kind of highlights how Nick Fury thinks. Okay, I've got nothing. Let me make it work. Because he's Nick Fury. And he's very meticulous. In fact, they probably wouldn't even notice he escaped otherwise. Now, she's not. <laughs> now, I don't mean this in any way in offense, but we see very early on that her overall approach to problems is to bash through them as fast and as hard as she can. Oh, there's a lock in the door. There we go. Now there's no more door. <laughs> right? Keep that in mind. I'm going to bring that up in the future. Probably next week, too, when it comes to the next film. So, you know, Talos gives himself away. Nicholas. I love his face because he's just like, what? Yeah, like in Havana. Right. Okay, he's an infiltrator. That's good to know. Quick aside, ooh, yawn attack. I really like the fact that they had him, like, that Mendelssohn, Ben Mendelssohn, plays Keller, and also plays Talos. It kind of helps to add to the whole deception thing going on. It's just interesting the way, the way they decided to do that. Also, quick aside, and I'll have to admit this kind of threw me for a bit, Mendelssohn is natural. Okay, he affects an accent when he acts most of the time, this sort of pseudo-high uh, American accent. If you've seen him in just about everything, you've heard him see that. If you saw him in Rogue One, if you saw him in Ready Player One, um, I know there's others. I can't think of any off the top of my head. He, he kind of affects an accent. He does it in this one, too. Except when he's playing Talos, the scroll. When he's Talos, he uses his native accent. That's his normal voice. Something about that amused me. I didn't know that until I was looking up stuff for this film. I was like, wow, that explains everything. And that helps to kind of distinguish him from himself. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. So, Jan Rog starts to get more and more desperate to try and keep things away from him. And Coulson gets his big scene. He doesn't get much screen time, but we can see that the rookie clearly has a good heart, and it's probably why Fury you know, paid attention to him in the future. There's this nice bit where they talk about, you know, this is what keeps us human and, and the idea of being yourself, and blah, blah, blah. Identity, we'll get more into that in a minute. But I want to give special praise to Lashana Lynch, which I hope I'm pronouncing right, because she is the woman who plays Rambo, and she nails it. Like... I want you to imagine for a moment that you have a really good friend who is super close to you, and then they're gone. And as she says, I'm sorry, I should have been my left hand. And as she says, on a mission so secret, they won't even acknowledge it existed, that it ever happened. And all of a sudden you walk back in, and hi, and I don't remember you, but I have superpowers now. I mean, what, huh? <laughs> this, of course, leads to, you know, the concept of who I am. Who is this who you are? Is this Veers who you are? I don't know. I don't know. And you can just see how much it's starting to tear up. This is when Brie Larson actually starts to, you know, drop the stoic thing and become a lot more human. And it's it, there's just it's this natural blend because she's being hit with something so personal that she can't even comprehend it because by her perception, she's never dealt with something like this before. They don't have friends like this over on Cree. They don't have connections like this. No, this is new to her, and it just breaks her heart in half, and you can tell. By the way, really quick, interesting bit of continuity. We find out that she was injured by the blast, so they use Kree blood infusion to help heal her. Now, you're probably thinking, well, that sounds weird. Yeah, but it should sound familiar, because that's what they used on Coulson over in the S.H.I.E.L.D. show, and that's what brought Coulson back. It healed him, specifically. So, 
interesting to keep in mind. I'm sure this is pretty much the exact moment in which Fury got the idea for doing that, actually. And Lord knows that Kree had several, you know, interactions on the shield, so, so that's a thing, too. But anyways, I'm going to have topic. So this then leads to the big switch. Oh my gosh, the scroll are actually, you know, good people. Holy crap. This reveal does have some issues in, in, in narrative construction, but it's still amazing, and I love this twist. But I want to help, I've, I've kind of built up to this point, I want to explain one of the reasons why this twist was such a big twist, especially for people like me. Because I've read the comics. <laughs> the scroll are the bad guys. Like, one of the worst bad guys. They're like the evil galactic empire of infiltrating doom. So even though at the beginning there was some inferences that the Kree were not good, the assumption is it's evil versus evil, just like it is in the comic. Because the Kree are evil in the comics, and the Skrull are evil in the comics. Pretty simple, right? So, that is the first nice meta take on this. But the second meta take is even better, because they got Ben Mendelsohn to play the lead Skrull. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing, but think about the kind of roles he plays. In fact, he's actually well-known for playing a villain who is out of his league. A Krennic, if you will. <laughs> yes, I get it. And so, by playing on our expectations, both with what we were expecting from the scroll and from the way he himself was portraying himself in every interaction, and of course, evil shapeshifters, even if, we, even if you knew nothing about the comics or Ben Mendelsohn, the, evil, the, the, the people who can infiltrate at will and are shapeshifters are usually the bad guys in, like, all of fiction. Look at Deep Space Nine, for God's sakes. Just to name one example of that. So they play this in a way that only really works the first time you watch it, but it does specifically play to your expectations. However, in hindsight, it actually does make perfect sense. We look at the Kree Empire and their expansionist policies, and we look at the way in which they expand, and it's kind of a Darth Malik sort of a thing. I'm going to conquer unless it gets in my way, then I'm going to destroy it because it's not under me, and therefore it has to go. It's almost robot-like, actually, like it's being run by an AI right now. We also get the idea that the infiltrators, even though they, of course, have done things, Talos himself says, you know, my own hands are filthy, at, the, at every step of the way, with only a couple of exceptions, they have been portrayed as people who are not actively evil. There's a difference between I will do a bad thing and I want to do a bad thing, and this film helps to showcase that. And as a final aside, there's just something really cool about the scroll working with us, and that'll probably come up in Phase 4, given the mid-credits scene or post-credits scene or whatever of Far From Home. So, <clears throat> loading. I'll admit, that was a really good gag. This is when we find out her the final bits of her backstory. I'm going to skip over that really quick, because I just want to mention there's a really, really good scene right after it between Danvers and Talos and Rambo. Talos is begging and pleading with her, please, you've got to help us. This, remember, he's trying to find his family, though he hasn't said that yet. Just, you've got to help us, you've got to, you've got to understand, there's so much. You're, they took everything from you just like they took everything from me, please. It's probably worth noting, he doesn't know if his family's alive at this point. All that does, of course, is throw Danvers into confusion and emotional turmoil. I don't even know who I am, which is when Rambo steps in. And the two women 
just gel perfectly. And there's, there's there's something natural and wonderful about that hug, about that friendship, that helps to ground, that that serves as a nice anchoring point for Danvers, and probably helps her to ground herself overall from this point onwards. You'll notice she is a lot more emotive, and even her literal motion, her body uh, body language, is a lot more relaxed from this point until the end of the film. Nice touch. So, her origin story. Two things I want to talk about that. First, so she's powered by Infinity Stone energy. Yeah. What's interesting is she's not powered directly by an Infinity Stone, but still, I mean, one step below an Infinity Stone is still pretty high tier. And we now see something, one of the things that uh, a lot of us viewers, fans, whatever, found incredulous is several people, including Feige, mentioned how uh, Captain Marvel will be the strongest member of the Avengers. And we're all like, wait, what? Her? Why? That doesn't make any sense. Well, now we know why. Because she's freaking powered by an Infinity Stone. And the catch is, and as we'll see this later on, she is really, really high tier. Um, probably higher tier than Thor with... Uh, I can't think of the name of the damn thing all of a sudden. Stormbreaker. Maybe not quite at that level. But still... The fact that it's in question says something. But she's a hammer. All she can do is just brute force her way through things. And that's relevant because when all you have is a hammer, there are a lot of problems you can't fix. I know, I know, it looks like you fixed it, but that's not really how you're supposed to open the packaging there. Anyways, the second thing I want to comment on is the whole concept of the light speed engine. This is actually bloody subtle, because they never really go in-depth into what this means. The entire idea here is, based on everything we've seen all the way back from Guardians of Galaxy 1, and it came up in Guardians of Galaxy 2, it came up in Infinity War, and it comes up in this film, and I think it comes up somewhere else that I'm mis mistaking. They use jump points. That's how the galaxy gets around. And these jump points are basically portal hubs that connect to each other, and they are able to make these hops to get around. Okay, makes sense. And then, so you plot a course through multiple jump points in order to figure out where you're going, like they do in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 when they go to Ego with it. However, those jump points are at static points, so you still need to go by sublight engines to reach them. This is part of why there's a ticking clock in this film, and why Captain Marvel, that is to say Danvers, has the chance to actually discover herself, because her team, who is coming to make sure she stays brainwashed, needs 22 hours to reach a jump point. Once they do, they're there. But you can see the problem, right? A true FTL engine doesn't need a jump point. It can just go up and then go to its destination. And, of course, it then makes perfect sense that the Space Stone is the one that's powering this. Not only because of the fact that it's been used as a power source many times, but because its big shtick is the ability to warp space. As, as, as has shown by Loki, uh, technically, in Avengers 1, as shown by Thanos extensively in Infinity War. So all of this makes perfect sense and lines up neatly. In fact, even the Tesseract being here at this point in time makes sense, which is part of why I brought up the Hydra thing earlier. Anywho, so this is when we find out about Talos' family and just, I don't know, it's a really heartwarming scene. I don't have much else to say about it. Um, she gets her big scene, uh, you know, the, the, the supreme intelligence. Without us, you're weak, flawed, helpless. You're only human. Now, I saw the trailers for this film. Of course I did. It's my job to look into these things. 
And the trailer constantly showed the her standing up, and then her standing up, and then her standing up. And it was pretty dumb. And I'm just going to say that. You know why it was dumb? Because it lacked context. See, that's the problem with trailers. They're designed to get your attention, not to actually do anything meaningful. And I could get off on trailers for a while. I could really just go off and rant about how much trailers are awful because trailers suck. But the point is, that scene, as presented in the trailers, was dumb. But here, all of a sudden, it's like, oh. Because the whole point is the humanity of it. That all of those times she was pushed down, or all of those times she crashed, or screwed up, or made a mistake, she got back up. Because apparently she's Spider-Man. And, I guess that would be Spider-Woman. Spider-Gwen? And as and, and that is, it makes it really awesome moment. Which then leads to her removing the power limiter. I'm amazed that never occurred to her to do before this, but whatever. Which then leads to her going nuts. Now, a lot, virtually every superhero origin story has this moment. It's the moment when the hero has fully realized their powers and has overcome whatever personal trauma they have, and they just plow through the enemy at that point. They win. And that's kind of what happens here. She just goes full tilt, and she plays around with the rest of the squad. It's kind of an establishing scene, but it makes sense because, again, she's not actually trying to kill them or destroy them. She's just buying for time. Remember, if she went full tilt, she'd probably destroy the ship they're on, and there's a lot of people on that ship whose lives she is actively trying to save. She also probably wants the ship intact so they can actually use it later. So, yeah, you could see why she's not going full out. 21 minutes before the end of the film. I counted, by the way. So, the inhibitor is removed. She's no longer fighting with an arm behind her back. She's awesome. There's this really cool section. Um, <laughs> we find out what a flurkin is. It's appropriately terrifying. Apparently, it can... Now, okay, there's actually a little interesting point here. So, a normal human being who, who holds the Tesseract, that causes issues. And, and it has caused issues. I mean, look what happened to Red Skull, for God's sakes. The fact that she could handle the cube without issue kind of is, you know, it, it makes sense because of her own energies. But there's this bit where she gives it to Nick Fury, and he's like, well, I'm not going to carry that. What, do you want an oven mitt? And then the flurkin eats it, which says something about the flurkin, doesn't it? Excuse me, I shouldn't say that so dismissively. It's not the flurkin, it's Goosey, he's such a good boy. Or is it female? Uh, doesn't matter. Goosey's such a good kitty. Now, <clears throat> And then, of course, there's the obvious bit where Goose goes up and rubs up against Talos, who is currently impersonating one of the guys. Nice little foreshadowing. Although he gives it away immediately after. Just like in Havana, right? Nice little tidbit. Talos gets shot. I thought they were going to do the super stereotypical thing of him getting shot and, no, I've died, but it's okay because I saw him. No, he lives. He's injured, but he lives. I like that. I do. I also like that they didn't kill Jan Rog which they could have. Now, <laughs> that brings me to uh, one last thing before we get there. Nine minutes later, after them you know, getting off and evacuating all that fun, uh, Rambo uses the shortcut to blow the hell out of the other lady and she's gone and dead. And then Ronan shows up with the accuser ships. This is, this is the nine minute later part. This is when she goes full tilt and she starts destroying spaceships by herself because she's a hammer. This really emphasizes what she is when it comes to her toolkit and power set. She is just a giant hammer of... She is what I like to call a destroyer. She's just a really high-tier destroyer. And Ronan's like, yeah, okay, let's leave. 
She probably should have destroyed him, too, if we're being completely honest. But that would have caused a time paradox. We can't have that. We'll talk about time paradoxes next film. <laughs> You'll notice the Kree never came back to Earth. Not really. I know S.H.I.E.L.D., but you know what I mean. The Kree, as an empire, never came back to Earth. And that leads me to another little thing. In Guardians of the Galaxy 1, there's an emperor of the Kree Empire, not the Supreme Intelligence. We also know that they were basically forced into signing a treaty with the Nova, uh, the Nova Empire, whatever they call themselves, you know, Xandar, right? Now, I point that out because, as I th I'm pretty sure I brought up all the way back in that rumination, which is forever ago at this point, how strange it is and how the films didn't really bother to describe exactly why that happened. They just kind of accept that it did and that it's unusual. Now, with the advantage of hindsight, we can look at this and say, huh, I'm pretty sure what happened was Danvers got involved and basically strong-armed a piece by wrecking the Kree, probably specifically destroying the, the Supreme Intelligence, or Central Intelligence, whatever it's called, the AI bot. Just interesting to think about in hindsight. After that, she goes after Yon-Rog, who looks like he's going to be the final boss, but no, no, she's already beaten the final boss. She's good. This is what I like to call a win-win scenario. He says, oh, I'm so proud of you. I believe him, by the way. I don't Like I said before, I don't think he's a good person, but I do think he is one of the better Kree. That's part of why I hope we see him in the future. Also because he's Jude Law, and Jude Law's an awesome actor, but that's neither here nor there. But the point being, if she decides to fight him on his terms, she wins because she's going to beat him and then show that she's better than him. Prove herself. I've actually got an example for this. In Winter Soldier... Cap is doing the infiltration mission. The guy's like, I, th uh, I thought you were more than just a shield. Cap puts down the shield and then beats the crap out of him. It would have been that kind of a scene. She proves her worth. She wins. Win-win. Now, the other win is if she does what she does in the film. She just blasts him and says, yeah, I don't got to prove anything to you. Sorry. <laughs> it's an Indiana Jones moment at that point. But it also kind of helps to showcase that she's gotten to the point where she knows she really doesn't have to prove anything to him. She knows who she is at this point. So, we have some wrap-up here. She leaves, of course. Fury loses his eye to a frickin' cat. Can I just say that's actually the worst part of the film? I'm not even joking. It just, I, I, I know that Fury was kind of more silly and kind of more casual in this film, but he loses his eye to a frickin'... Okay, whatever. Rambo, possibly joining S.H.I.E.L.D. I hope they follow through on that. The Pager. Ah, the Pager. You know, there's never been a proper official explanation for what the hell is up with the pager. Now, I know what the official explanation is. The official explanation is, this is a retcon. And they weren't actually thinking about her and the pager and her existence in the mythos because of the fact that Perlmutter's an idiot. So, she was originally supposed to be involved in this stuff. And again, it prob the pager probably would have come up before frickin' Infinity War. But it didn't, so they're just kind of making do with what they got. The only statement we have is, how do you know she didn't, or how do you know he didn't use the pager before? Right. I got nothing. When something so clearly happens for out-of-character reasons, I, I, I don't really have a good way of coming up with an in-character excuse for it. Because I know why it happened. It happened for out-of-character reasons. If you guys want to share any particular thoughts or theories on the pager thing, by all means. I've heard plenty, and I wouldn't mind hearing some more. And, of course, we find out about the Avengers Initiative, music plays, and mid credit scene jumps into a scene that's actually not in Endgame. 
it's unique to this, but it is a direct lead up into Endgame because, well, they're still tabulating the dead. There's a really great line Widow has, I've had better nightmares. And I agree, I've had better nightmares than that. That's, that's not a nightmare. That's beyond description. And I love the expression on Danvers' face when she uh, shows up, where's Fury? <laughs> I've always liked to think, they never clarify this, I've always liked to think that while she was out wherever she was doing her job as the galactic superhero, um, the, the snap hit and she just saw people start to fade and it was just kind of a, what? And then minutes or seconds later, her pager goes off from Earth. Think about what that would feel like. Think about what a moment that would be. Like, she's just she's just in the middle of doing whatever. It's like, ha-ha! And then I'll go move this ship over here, and then where's everyone going? Oh, my God, they're turning into ash. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> just think about what that would feel like in that moment. My God. That's all I got. Good film, good film. Now it's time to talk about the big one. It's just like a three-hour film. I'm going to spend like my entire day working on just this one video. So I hope you have enjoyed, and I will see you guys next time.